We continue our series in the Gospel of John this week, and I invite you to open your Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Our sermon text will come from verses 17 to 44. I'd like to take a moment to bring you up to speed on where we are in this story. In last week's episode of John's Gospel, Jesus received an urgent message from some, from some beloved friends that their brother was suffering from a terminal illness. But instead of rushing to the aid of their friend, Jesus sat where he was and waited two more days. He told his disciples that that sickness would not end in death, but rather it was for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. And then two days later, curiously, he told his disciples that his friend Lazarus had in fact died of the illness. And now that he was dead, Jesus decided to go to him. Only he was not going to attend his funeral, he was going to wake him up from his sleep. Now this turn of events came as a shock to the disciples and as we are going to see it also came as a shock to Lazarus's sisters. Jesus is making his way to Bethany. If you are willing and able, I invite you to stand and listen to God's holy word as I read this story. And as I read this story, I encourage you to put yourselves in the shoes of the characters in the story. See if you can relate to Lazarus in the tomb, or see if you can relate to Mary and Martha weeping and grieving over the loss of their brother. See if you can put yourself in the shoes of the disciples who are curious about what Jesus is doing and what he is up to. The Word of God reads, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? 
But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading the preaching and the hearing of his word and all God's people say, Amen. may be seated. Lazarus lived and died in the village of Bethany. Bethany meant house of the poor. Lazarus meant God helps. But in this story, at least for a few days, it looked like God did not help this sick and dying man in the house of the poor. In this story, it looked like for a moment that God did not even care or notice him. In this story, death came to Lazarus and left his sisters mourning, grieving, and wondering, where was Jesus? What was he doing? Why didn't he come? You notice in the reading of the story that both sisters blame Jesus for their brother's death. They both say, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. I'm sure that many of you can relate to their moment of grief and sorrow, for in your moments of grief and sorrow, you have probably uttered the same kinds of things. As a pastor, I have heard people cry out in hospital rooms and in funeral homes and church sanctuaries asking, why did God let this happen? Why didn't God answer our prayers? What did we do to deserve this grief? It is natural and it is common that we ask such questions in the wake of death because from our point of view, there is nothing at all in all of life that is worse than death. To us, death is the worst thing that can happen to anyone. But not to Jesus. You notice in the story that from Jesus' point of view, there is apparently something far worse than death. And what is far worse than death is dying in your sins as an exile from the Lord. Just last summer, I was invited to speak at a memorial service for one of your loved ones, for one of our brothers here. And the brother of the man who passed away told me that what made him more sad than anything else was that his brother was not walking with the Lord when he died. And in fact, for many years, he had not been walking with the Lord. 
And this weighed so heavily upon his heart that he actually asked me to tell the gathered friends and family the truth about this situation. Not because he wanted to injure his deceased brother or diminish him, but because he wanted the family and friends to be warned that it is necessary to walk with the Lord both in this life that you may walk in the, in the Lord in the life to come and walk with the Lord even in death so that you may walk with Him in the life to come. We learn in this story, we learn in our experience that death is a bad thing. But there is something that is far worse than death. Sooner or later death comes to us all. And so I want you to make sure that you trust and obey the Lord Jesus Christ in this life before you die. Amen. I want to point out that even in the wake of death, notice that Martha, the sister of Lazarus, held out some kind of hope that Jesus could still do something for her dead brother. This is a curious part of the story to me because after she blames Jesus for letting her brother die and after she wonders why Jesus wasn't there, she says, but even now, even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, I don't know what she had in mind or what she hoped Jesus would do. Maybe it was just her thinking, even now you can console us. You can make us feel better. You can take away our pain. But then Jesus does something that I'm sure she did not expect when he says, your brother will rise again. After consoling Martha and Mary with this powerful message of grace and truth, Jesus makes his way to Lazarus' tomb. But notice that he goes there not to pay last respects or to perform burial rites. He goes there so he can perform a sign. Now, no one understands what he's about to do. He has claimed that he's going to wake up Lazarus. He's going to, uh, he's going to make him rise again at some point. But no one fully grasps what that is about. Jesus is about to do something in the story that no one expects. And before we get to the nuts and bolts of that, I want us to pause and think about some of the details of this situation. Think about Lazarus for a moment. Jesus' friend Lazarus has succumbed to a terminal illness of some sort. And in that time, Jesus was nowhere to be found. But that was not the end of his story as many people around him felt. Jesus himself had said, the illness will not end in death, but in life. Now that seems to contradict what actually happened, doesn't it? Because Jesus said the illness will not end in death, and yet Lazarus died. But I want you to keep in mind that after Lazarus passed from this life to the next... Keep in mind the truth of what happened here. The reality of the situation is that his spirit entered the afterlife by means of death. But his body rested in the ground. The Shorter Catechism says, What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? The answer is, the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory and their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves until the resurrection. So think of what's happening here, reality of the situation. For four days, Lazarus's body has been in the grave. He is beginning to decay and decompose in the grave. But Lazarus's spirit is basking in the glory and the majesty of life after death in the presence of God. 
Lazarus' body is resting in the tomb, but his spirit is rejoicing before the throne of grace. Mary and Martha don't know that. The mourners don't know that, but Jesus does. I want you to keep that in mind as you watch Jesus make his way to the tomb. We read repeatedly in the story that Jesus' spirit was deeply troubled within him. And there are various explanations for that. It's partly because of what he sees happening with the sisters and the mourners and the suffering that they're experiencing and the, and the loss they feel. But it's also partly because Jesus knows what is about to happen to Lazarus. In other words, he knows what Lazarus is about to lose temporarily. When he reaches the tomb, he commands probably his disciples to remove the stone that covered the entrance. These stones are quite heavy, so it probably took two or three men, perhaps more, to remove that stone. And while they get to work on the stone, Martha protests. She warns Jesus about the reality of this situation. Martha is a very practical woman, if you know anything about her in Scripture. And so uh, she, has, uh, she is aware of the details here. And so she says, no, 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 we can't do that. Lazarus has been dead four days, and there is a bad odor. In the last few years, we've all adopted reading the English Standard Version of the Bible, which is quite good translation. There are other translations that are fine as well. But the thing I don't like in this passage is that the ESV cleans up what Martha said a little bit too much. Some of you remember reading the old King James Version, and in the King James Version, it says it quite bluntly, He stinketh. And that is what the Greek says, or something very similar. He stinketh. It's in a third-person singular indicative. It's a verb. Too much information, but it can mean this. He stinks or it stinks. But either way, everyone knows that opening the tomb of a decomposing corpse is ill-advised. Now keep in mind, Martha has already lost her brother and suffered that loss and the, the pain that comes with it. The last thing she wants is for this bad odor to go out among the community so that people remember Lazarus not as a man in the house of the poor, not as her brother, not as a, a good believer or whoever he might be. They're going to remember, I went to his funeral and man, did it ever stink. That's what she's worried about. She does not want to be embarrassed or shamed by the stench of this decomposing body. She wants to maintain some form of decorum and dignify her brother even in death. And yet Jesus insists, no, open the tomb. And so they roll the stone away. And while the stone is being removed, Jesus begins to pray to his father. He continues a conversation with his father that apparently he has been having for the last two days. New Testament scholar Tom Wright suggests that Jesus had been praying for Lazarus from the time he got the message of Lazarus' sickness until now. And so he is simply continuing this conversation with the Father and he is saying to the Father, I thank you that you have heard me and that you always hear me. Unlike us, Jesus' prayer was not an afterthought. It was not a knee-jerk reaction to death. It was not a last-ditch effort flare prayer, that the kind that I tend to throw up when I'm in crisis mode. Maybe you can relate to that. Now, this particular moment has been on Jesus' heart and mind for the last few days. 
Everyone else is wondering what Jesus is doing. Why hasn't he gone? And yet Jesus has been in prayer for his friend Lazarus. He's been in communion with his father about this moment. And notice that his prayer is to the effect that whatever happens next, the father will use it to cause people to put their trust in Jesus Christ. And I want to say to you that that is my prayer at this moment, that whatever happens next, God will use this story, that he will even use this weak and frail sermon to cause you to put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice what Jesus did. He prays to the Father and then he turns to the open tomb. And all he sees is a cave there. It's a dark spot on a wall. And he doesn't move into it. He doesn't draw close. He stands where he is and says, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man came out, wrapped like a mummy. But he was no longer dead. Now he's alive. Now, if you're like me, sometimes you read things too quickly and you assume too much and move right past it onto the next part. You blow past a story and don't think about the details. But I want to help you slow down a little bit. I want you to slow down a little bit and think about what just happened here. Right before Jesus called Lazarus' name, Lazarus was a dead man. His body is decomposing in the grave. His spirit is delighting in glory. And yet when Jesus called his name, Lazarus, somehow the dead man heard the voice of Jesus. His decaying body was remade and renewed. His spirit returned to his body. And the dead man obeyed Jesus and came out. But he was no longer a dead man. Now he's alive. And when he came out, you notice there's no more stench. There's no more sickness. There's no more sorrow. Lazarus is a new man. And based on what we have seen and heard and learned in the Gospel of John, we can say of Lazarus that Lazarus was a man born again. A man born from above. A man born by the power of the resurrection and the life of Jesus Christ. And the story ends abruptly with Jesus just telling the people nearby to unwrap him and set him free. And even that little statement is important for our purposes because we see that when Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb, he's not merely calling Lazarus into a personal relationship with him. Jesus involves the whole community to come and to touch him and feel him and unwrap him and to participate in his conversion experience. The whole community is invited to come and be a part of this liberation. So what has happened in this story? What has happened in this story is that Jesus has interrupted a funeral by waking Lazarus from his sleep, by raising him from the dead. I'd like to encourage you to spend some time thinking about that this week. Now we skipped over a very important part of the story. It's a part of the story that is crucial to knowing and understanding Jesus Christ. 
As you know, it is the shortest verse in the Bible. And in the shortest verse in the Bible, John tells us simply and plainly, Jesus wept. And the question is, why did he weep? You have scholars who say that he wept to show that he was really and truly a man like us and that death affected him the way it affects us. Others say he wept to show that he was sympathetic towards those who have suffered loss and that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And I would echo both of those and say, Amen, those things are true. But I want to add that they barely scratched the surface of what's happening in the Gospel of John. In other words, I think we can do even better than that. I want to suggest at least two more reasons why Jesus wept. Here's one. Jesus wept because he knew what was about to happen to the dead man, Lazarus. And let me explain what I mean by that. When Jesus called Lazarus from death to life, think about what's happening. He is also calling him from life back into death. The mere thought of calling Lazarus back out of eternal bliss into a world broken and damaged by sin was even more troubling and disturbing to Jesus' spirit than losing his friend to sickness in the first place or to watching his sisters grieve or even hearing the mourners wail. When we view the story from that angle, the question we ought to ask is not, why did Jesus let Lazarus die? Rather, the question should be, why did Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? I mean, if he's already gone to a better place, he's in a better state of existence, he's in a better community of people, why bring him back to this world? And the answer to all of these questions and more is, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it, and so that all who follow Jesus may believe unto eternal life. In our flesh we say, no, 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 that reason is not good enough. But that's the reason Jesus gives. Let me suggest to you another reason why Jesus wept. Jesus wept because in Lazarus, in the story of Lazarus, he saw his own story. In the story of Lazarus, he saw his own future. He saw his own death and burial. He saw what his own death was going to do to his friends and to his loved ones and how they would weep and wail at losing him. He saw what his own tomb would look like from the outside and how his grave clothes would fit tightly on his body and bind his wounds. He saw what passing from life into death and then from death back into life would look like. Jesus wept because he knew that his time was running out. His hour was near. He knew that he would soon walk through the valley of the shadow of death just like every other man, just like Lazarus. And why would he do that? He would do it for the glory of God and for the good of the world. He would do it for your sake and mine. 
For the past 20 years or so, every funeral sermon I've ever delivered has touched on this story. And there's one simple reason for that. In this story, Jesus makes a tremendous truth claim that, if true, gives us every reason to hope and to find true comfort in life and in death. But if false, gives us every reason to despair and wallow in the misery of death and life. The truth claim is this. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. That's the truth claim. But here's the question for us, the question for you. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Can you bring together what you know to be true about Jesus, what you believe to be true about Jesus, and can you live that out in life? That's the question. The truth claim is simply a summary of all that Jesus has been saying and doing throughout the Gospel of John. At one point in John's Gospel, Jesus said, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them from my hand. These are the truth claims Jesus makes. Jesus is the Lord and giver of life. And so he utters these truth claims to his people. And yet the sad, cold, hard fact of life is that death continues to come at us. It comes and it keeps coming at us. And it will come to us all in one way or another. When I first started my ministry 20 plus years ago, this may surprise you, not that I've endured ministry so long, but it may surprise you what I'm about to tell you, that I had never attended a funeral in my life, although I had lost people that I loved. A beloved uncle was taken away from us by cancer. A lovely friend unexpectedly took her life in a closet. Another sweet girl from our youth group accidentally crashed her car into a tree on spring break. But it was in my first years of ministry that the enemy death truly became an unwelcome guest, a real enemy, a nemesis in my life and in the lives of the people around me. I will never forget the first time I watched someone pass from this life before my waking eyes leaving behind a small son. Or the time I held the hand of an elderly woman while she gasped and took her last breath and her hand felt limp in mine. Or the time an elderly woman called me before sunrise on a cold, snowy winter day, asking me to come and help her husband get up off the floor. And when I arrived, I discovered that he was cold and lifeless. I can still see the tear-filled eyes. A 
of my old friend AJ, a War II vet, half smiling, half crying at the end. Even though he was ravaged by cancer, he believed that he was on his way to meet the Lord. As long as I live, I shall never forget the image of a young father in the ER room clinging to his lifeless baby, rocking him in his arms. And I will never forget hearing his wails echo through the emergency room as he begged God to bring back his baby and not take him away. And in the time that I've been with you, we have walked through life and death together. We have bid farewell to aunts and spouses and friends and brothers and mothers. In the past few years, you have helped me and my family bury three grandparents and an uncle. Death is an unwelcome guest that haunts us all. This feels a little risky, but I want to share a secret with you. Every time I teach, every time I preach, I pray that death will be interrupted by the Spirit of the Lord and call my hearers by name to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's my prayer that in your hearts and in your life you will hear the voice of Christ saying to you by name, Wake up! Rise from the dead! There was a time many years ago in my ministry when I thought that gospel ministry was like this. I thought it was like doing patient care in a hospital. The ministers were sort of like physicians and that it was our job to go around from hospital room to hospital room, from patient to patient, and try to persuade and convince sick people to take their medicine so they could get better. And all that changed about 15 years ago when by God's grace I saw in the scriptures that the situation is much more grave than that. It is much worse than that. The world is not a hospital full of sick people who just need to take their little gospels in order to get better. The world is a graveyard. It is full of dead men, full of dead women who need the resurrection and the life. Ministers are not like physicians who have some magic pill to come around and if you could take it, if you would take their advice and counsel, then you would get well. No, ministers are more like prophets who spend their time praying, praying that God would send His Spirit to bring life to the dead, preaching in a graveyard full of dead people. Can these bones live? That's what we want to know. Can these bones live? Can this congregation live? Can this marriage survive? Can my son come to life? Can these bones live? Can I survive another day? That's what we want to know. 
And the answer we must give to be faithful is only God knows if these bones can live because only God can make them live. So in this story, we see Jesus showing us what gospel ministry looks like. He goes down to a graveyard the way Ezekiel went down into the valley of dry bones. And like the prophet, he prays to heaven and then he preaches to the dead and the Spirit breathes life into the slain and the slain are restored, tendon upon bones, flesh upon tendon, until they stand on their feet. Calvin puts it like this, Christ does not come to the sepulcher as an idle spectator, but as a conqueror preparing for a contest. And therefore we need not wonder that he groans again, for the violent tyranny of death which he had to conquer is placed before his eyes. And in this story, with a single word, the resurrection and the life destroys death and destroys darkness in a moment. In this story, we see a prime example of the way God calls the dead to life. We see a prime example of effectual calling and irresistible grace, which are very fancy theological ways of saying we see an example of the way Christ calls dead people to life, the way he calls people in darkness into light. In this story, it is Christ who calls Lazarus. Lazarus does not call him. It is Christ who chooses Lazarus. It is not Lazarus who chooses him. It is Christ who compels Lazarus to come forth. It is not Lazarus who compels Christ to come. And when Christ said, Lazarus, come out, Lazarus' response was irresistible. The voice of Christ is irresistible. The dead man came and stood before him. Boyce says that here we have a picture of the grace of God calling dead sinners to life. There are similarities between the physical resurrection of the dead man Lazarus and the spiritual regeneration of dead sinners like us. In both cases, the dead are raised to life, and those who stink are refreshed and renewed, and those who sleep are awakened. In both cases, the dead are called by name and raised from the death, from the dead back to life, not by the flesh, but by the spirit. For the flesh counts for nothing, but the spirit gives life. And I want to say to you that in the story of Lazarus, you should see your own story, just as I see my story in the story of Lazarus. And this is how. That just as Lazarus was dead asleep in the tomb until the moment Jesus called him by name, so we were dead asleep in darkness, the darkness of our sins, until the moment he called us by name. And just as Lazarus was awakened by the voice of Jesus and brought from death to life, so we were awakened by the voice of Jesus and born anew from death to life. And just as Lazarus was called from darkness to light, from bondage to freedom, so we were called from darkness to light and from bondage to freedom by the Spirit of Christ through the preaching of the gospel of grace. I would be remiss if I did not mention this one fact to you, but it is interesting 
that when Jesus called the dead man from the tomb, he called him by name. Not only does that personalize the situation, but it also limits the number of the dead who are coming out of their graves. This was not a general call to any and every dead person who happened to be out there. This was a specific call to one dead man. And that dead man heard the voice of Christ and came. Now why was all of this necessary? Why do we even need all of these things to happen? Why does Lazarus have to suffer and die and rise again? We ask these kinds of questions about normal folks like us. The deeper question, as we will see in weeks to come, is why did all of this have to happen? Why was it necessary? Why did Jesus have to suffer and die and rise again? And the answer is, so that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that by believing you might have eternal life in His name. Final question. Do you believe Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do you? Do you believe Jesus is the resurrection and the life? If you believe, you will see the glory of God. Let us pray. O oh God, preserve us, for in you we take refuge. We say to the Lord, you are our Lord. We have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all our delight. The sorrows of those who run after other gods shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood we will not pour out or take their names upon our lips. The Lord is our chosen portion and our cup. He holds our lot. The lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. Indeed, we have a beautiful inheritance. We bless the Lord who gives us counsel. In the night also our heart instructs us. We have set the Lord always before us because He is at our right hand. We shall not be shaken. Therefore our heart is glad and our whole being rejoices. Our flesh also dwells secure. For the Lord will not abandon our soul to Sheol, to death and Hades. Or let his holy ones see corruption. You make known to us the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. For the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.